Exodus chapter 7. Please turn there and let's look at verses 8. And I think we're going to go ahead and go down to probably verses 8 to 13. All right, so Exodus 7, 8 to 13. The title of the message is God's dealings with his enemies. And let's read, I will read here out loud, you can read silently, Exodus 7, chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Lord, help me to preach this message with anointing. Help my friends to hear it with faith, that we might grow to be the people you've called us to be, to look like your son, Jesus, both individually and corporately. Lord, we pray this according to your word, by faith. We know that's pleasing to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What an incredible factual account we have in Exodus 7, 8 through eleven ten. It's fact. This is not fairy tale. But what an incredible factual event. I mean, if CNN, Fox News were in, uh, in existence at that time, they would be covering this thing 24-7. I mean, by the way, the word serpent that is used here, it's not just like a little garden snake. You know, Dale, like the little garden snake you had in front of your house that day when you blocked off your whole entrance and had big signs that say, beware of snake. It wasn't one of those jobbers, okay? The word for serpent here is the Hebrew word dragon. Those of you who are very discerning, yeah, we get the English word dragon, okay? This is like the iguana-type creature that my wife saw the other day when she had to stop the car. I mean, you know, like... Eight foot, you know, reptilian thing crawling around. So, I mean, you know, Aaron throws down his snap. It's just like a, a little, you know, a little snake in the grass there, you know. Whoom, boom, whoa. And then the magicians go, whoom, whoa. We got about six dragon like snakes running around. And right at the beginning, God lays down the gauntlet, punches him in the nose, and says, My serpent eats your serpent. And therein begins one of the most incredible factual accounts. I mean, think about it. If the world were looking at this, you know what the title would be on Fox News? Two poor Hebrews take down the most powerful leader in the world. Two unarmed, poorly clothed Hebrews take down the most powerful leader in the world. The greatest comeback story ever. Two million slaves overcome the most powerful leader with the most advanced weaponry and army in the world. If the world would have been commenting on it, that's what they would have said. But, oh, dear friends, that is not the truth. Because those two poor Hebrews, Moses and Aaron, would tell you that they were nothing. 
How many times do we have to read that Moses didn't want to go? He was a stuttering, bumbling, 80-year-old man who'd lost his confidence way back when he was 40. He constantly blew it. He constantly complained. Aaron as well. They would tell you we're nothing. But, oh, the Bible is clear. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. So two nobodies, they knew they were nobodies, and they knew what brought Pharaoh down wasn't two Hebrews and two million, Jew, two million Jewish slaves. You know what they knew brought the most powerful man down in the world? The Lord, the Lord God Almighty. They knew that. Do you? Because see, in this story, we're going to see in plague after plague, I mean, imagine over the course of perhaps several months, plague after plague, God designing each plague to destroy the most powerful nation in the world so that his name would be glorified, so that Pharaoh would finally bow his knee and obey God when God said to Pharaoh, you let my people go. They're not your people. They have been in slavery to you for 400 years, and you think you own them. But let me tell you something. A new boss is in town. Actually, he's always been in town because he lets you own them. But now this new boss is exercising his will. You let my people go. And Pharaoh said, your people? I don't even believe in you. Who are you? I'm not letting them go. And God said, okay. Let's get ready to rumble. And for two months, plague after plague, water is turned into blood through the whole nation. Frogs, ladies, how would you like that? Invade your kitchen. How about dust? Poosh, turning into gnats. Oh, how's this? Flies everywhere. Those of us who have been to Cuba, right? That was not the plague, trust me. Flies everywhere. How about this? One day, all your livestock are there, and you make your living by your livestock. The next day, they're all dead. They're all dead. And all the livestock of Israel are alive. Imagine if you live right there. Here's the land of Goshen, two million slaves, Jewish slaves. Here is the prosperous, wealthy Egyptian. He wakes up one day, he's bankrupt. All his money, all his livestock gone, dead, lying on the ground. Flies around them. He looks over at the Jews, who are slaves, perhaps serving him, all their livestock alive. Amazing. If that weren't bad enough, God says, you know what? Tomorrow, I'm going to give everybody boils, except for the Jews. Next day, how would, you like to, how would you like to come to church with boils? It's like, you know, it's like we all have boils, so we're not trying to like, tell each, like notice each other's boils, you know, like, good morning, ah, good morning, you know, like, and then like, there's like two or three Jewish people in the church, and they don't have boils. It's like, how come you have boils? The Lord God Almighty recognize his name. He is God. Serve him. Or, or, the, or the plague of, of the hail. God says, get everybody out. Uh, get everybody in who's outside. Because if you don't, they're going to die. Because tomorrow I'm going to start throwing rocks at you. Big ones. And I have really good aim. <laughs> by then, by then, by the way, that was the, uh, that was the seventh plague. By then, a lot of the Egyptians were beginning to listen. Because it says some of them who feared God came inside. And you know what happened the next day? If you were outside, if you were, metaphorically speaking, giving God the finger, come on, give me your best shot. Boom. Oh, is he under there? Everything that was outside died. God's serious. Or the eighth plague. I mean, you know how much you like little creatures, right, ladies? How would you like millions of locusts eating everything in your house? 
all your plants. Back then, it's an agrarian society. They lived from what they grew. The locusts came and ate everything. Or the ninth one. Now, by the ninth one, you know that everybody's freaking out. How would you like at the height, in the middle of the day, hottest day in Miami, brilliant sun, not a cloud in the sky, and it's so dark, you can't see your hand in front of your face. That's what scripture says. Would that affect you just a little bit? People would be screaming. In fact, I think that's a real picture of God's judgment, eternal judgment. I'm sure people were screaming at that point. Can you imagine the horror? Imagine your little children. Mommy, turn the lights on. I can't. It's pitch black. Darkness. What a story. So what was the story designed to say? Well, look in your notes. Here's what the story. Why all the plagues? Why this historical, factual event? Why did God do this? Here's why he did it. Because he is God and there is none other. Obey him. Obey him. Obey him. The Lord, he is God, point one. We see in our notes, Exodus 5, 2. I alluded to this earlier. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then in Exodus seven seventeen, the passage that we, right after the one we just read, uh, in, in chapter 7, verse 17, it says this, Thus says the Lord, he's talking to Moses, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. So here it is. Why are we doing this? Why is God doing this? He's doing this so that the world will know that he is God. That the world will know that he is God. Very interesting point here. Though the first plague was probably the mildest plague, although it would be really gross, okay, really gross, I don't think I have any water left in here, but I was drinking it just earlier. If, this, if, if I was like, like the moment before, Moses, I didn't know this, okay? like I'm in like South Egypt and Moses is in Northeast Egypt, okay? And right as I'm about to drink this thing full of water, Moses stretches out his, his, his uh, staff and right as I drink it, it turns into blood. That would be gross. But it's nothing compared to locusts and your cattle dying and God throwing big rocks at you, okay? Okay. But can I tell you that this first plague was perhaps the most significant? You know why? Where did Moses go to begin this plague? What does the scripture say? Verse 17, the Nile. Did you know that for the Egyptian, the center of their entire life was the Nile? When you're in a desert country, the Nile is your life source. The Nile would have given all the water for upper and lower Egypt. The Nile was the center of Egyptian life. It was so much the center of Egyptian life that the Egyptians considered the Nile divine. So God says, listen, let's start this rumble by me hitting you right in the mouth. I'm going to your God, and I'm going to pollute and desecrate your God. I'm taking your God down now. Boom. And the blood started from the Nile and then proceeded out. Actually, it's interesting, if you look at some of the other plagues, if you look at the frogs, it says they proceed from the Nile. So what is God saying? This is rich. I don't know if Pharaoh would have remembered the story of Moses. We sure do. But Moses, the same one who was rescued out of the Nile God by a greater God, the only God, capital G, God Almighty, comes back and exercises authority over the Nile God. And Moses knew it wasn't his authority. He was, just, he was just the servant. He was the messenger boy. 
He was saying, Niall, your match has, been, has come. You are under the Lord God Almighty. That's why the first plague began at the Nile. Reading from your notes, water turning into blood may have been, in one sense, the lightest of the plagues, but in Egyptian terms, it was loaded with significance. It was a direct challenge to the Nile God. If Pharaoh was aware at all of the history of Moses as we are, he would have observed the man who had been saved from the power of the Nile, now claiming power over the Nile. All right, let's talk about Pharaoh. What up with Pharaoh hardening his heart? Why, why, why would Pharaoh harden his heart? Well, what Scripture says is that God is the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Reading again from your notes, exactly what it says in Exodus 4, 21 to 23. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do, you, that you, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. God is the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart, and at the end, you're going to find out next week in more detail, in a little bit, a foretaste of it this week at the end of our section, that God, the tenth plague is God kills the firstborn of Pharaoh, because Pharaoh will not release the firstborn of God. On and on, plague after plague. The cows, did you know that the cow was a god in Egypt? Hathor is the name of this god, this cow-headed mother goddess. God is singling out pretended deities for exposure, and he's declaring our propositional statement this morning, he is God. There is none other. There is no god like our god. Now I want to take just a brief moment to talk about this hardening of Pharaoh's heart because it almost can seem that it's, that it's unfair. Okay? It could almost seem that way. And, and I want you to, to, to look at this next line here. There is no other God like our God. Excuse me. The next line, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And I want us to look at some New Testament scripture to answer that question. It almost seems like this is an unfair fight. God is stronger, and yet he hardens Pharaoh's heart, and so Pharaoh can't say yes because God has a purpose. And I want us to try to understand why God did this. And so in your notes, you'll see Romans 9, 14 to 18. And it says the following. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, quote, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. By the way, you want to jot right next to that. That's a direct quote from Exodus thirty-three nineteen. So right next to that little passage in Romans 9, verse 15, you can jot down Exodus thirty-three nineteen. Whenever the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, we need to pay attention because the New Testament is about to explain the Old Testament. Because it really, doesn't it bother you that he would harden Pharaoh's heart and then crush Pharaoh, and destroy a nation? It's almost like, hey, unfair. But God is good. And Romans 9 is going to explain it for us. So verse 15 of Romans 9, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, So then it depends not on human will 
or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Your salvation depends not on your human will or your exertion, but on God who has mercy. The whole earth depends not on human will or our exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say in verse 17 to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. God did it to show that he alone is God. He alone determines what is right. He alone determines all things. It is not up to man who wills or exhorts, exerts, or in Pharaoh's case, who thinks he rules, but it depends on God who has mercy. Have you learned this lesson yet in your life? Oh, may we all learn it and come and bow down before the Lord who alone is God. Point two. Not only did he do it to say, I alone am God, but he says, there is no other God like our God. Exodus 8.10, when he's announcing the plague of the frogs, he says this. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. In Exodus 9.14, For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants, and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all of the earth. The Nile was the source of life for Egypt. It was a false god. What are you looking to as the source of life in your life that is a false God that God wants to deal with? A false God or an idol is anything, even if it's good, that we invest with the power to give life and sustenance because that only belongs to God. Is your 401k your source of life? Is your paycheck from your employer your source of life? Oh, sure, if you don't get a paycheck, I understand. Your life's going to be radically different. I understand that. But what's your source of life? What's the ultimate source of life? Is it your safety? Is it this country? Would God touch those false gods that we invest so much into so that we would say, Lord, I bow my knee to you alone. There's none like you. Are there some things in your life that are challenging God for supremacy? A relationship? A desire? When to have fun? Fill in the blank. We may not have cow-headed goddesses, but we can have a relationship that dominates us. That's all we think about. Might as well be our God. I'm not going to be happy till I get what I want. A job, maybe respect, security. Here's the good point, my friends. Not only does God go after those false gods, 
But oh, read this line silently with me under point two, right after Exodus 9.14. There is no other God like our God, and our God is merciful. You know, I was telling Corey that this week I just was hit with a wave of unbelief. It surrounded some decisions that, that others are making and how it would affect me, how it would affect the church. Um, it, 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 the wave was fueled by reading an article in the Herald <laughs> and watching it on CBS4. Sorry, Wally, CBS4 is great. Okay, that's where you work, okay? Lenny, you know. But I shouldn't have watched, you know, David Sutta's, you know, video presentation of this. And basically saying, you know, everybody's leaving Miami, right? And I just, I shook as pastor. I just shook. And man, I just got up off the floor. And I just grabbed that thought. And I just like punched it in the face. I said, no. Because the issue is not Alpino or Palm Vista. The issue is the gospel and God. And I am not going to lie against God and say that this is my source of life. No. No. Now, we're still fighting, but I said no. <laughs> I'm punching it. You know, and you walk away and then it hits you again. Get out of here. And I go borrow some of your guns, put it out of its misery once and for all. You know, the, the, the problem is, the, the problem with that kind of stuff, it's called the flesh and the world and Satan, is you're going to have to fight it the rest of your life. But I am not going to bow my knee to the God of security and comfort and what I want and, you know, all that stuff. I'm not going to do it. Don't you do it. It's not worth it. I don't care if you get the white picket fence where you think it's best to live. It's not worth it. It's fool's gold. And when you get to heaven, you will be sorry you did it. And if you suffer well under what God calls you to do, you will have a reward that's going to blow your mind. Because God can sustain two million Jews in a desert type environment with a leader that wants to kill them. He can sustain you. Listen, it's not about anything other than God. Will we honor him? We've got to. I'll die before I dishonor him. Yeah, I'm a little intense right now. I realize that. All right. But God is merciful. Exodus 9, 19. Good passage in your notes. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. What do we see here? Yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but he warned the Egyptians, get out of the field, tomorrow I start throwing rocks. Exodus 33, 19, we just read it. And he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then Romans 9, 15 and 16, again, quoting that passage in Exodus 33, 19. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, nor on exertion, but on God who has mercy. Don't you realize that in Exodus 33 is one of the most profound revealings of God's nature that you'll find in Scripture? And here's something I'm trying to learn. I want to touch God's mercy. The same God who hardened Pharaoh's heart and did ten incredible plagues that if you would have seen them, you would have turned your head away at times. He loves to be merciful. Do you get that? See, a lot of people read Romans 9 and want to shake their fist in God's face and say, who do you think you are not having mercy on everybody? It's unfair that you harden their hearts. Instead, we should read that passage and say, oh God, You show mercy to some, and I'm one of those. And you know what, guys? You know what? I'm not a very merciful guy. As you just saw about two minutes ago, I'm real good at the hellfire brimstone. You know, and I'm going to hear about this later. You know, crinkling my forehead and staring holes into people. I I like that kind of preaching, okay? It's not very popular, as you can tell, but I like it. (laughs) But listen to me, this is not funny. Yes, God is that way. But you know the side of God that I haven't touched as much? Is his mercy. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm going to change. Thank God for his word that reveals this to us, isn't it? I want to touch his mercy. Do you know God loves to show mercy? Oh, he's holy, and he will throw rocks. But he loves, to, he loves to show mercy. Do I? Do you? Do you know God doesn't delight in the death of a sinner? He doesn't. Do you know God would that all men would be saved? Do you know that? I know that presents a lot of problems. So what? Destroy my little theological boxes. This I know. He's holy, and you better fear him. And he loves to show mercy. He wants to show mercy to you. You know what I feel this morning? We're going to probably bring this to the close here. You know what I feel this morning? I feel God wants to show mercy to someone this morning. When I was preparing this message, I felt that God wanted to save somebody this morning. Now, I don't know all of you. I don't. There's people here... This is the first time I've seen you. If you've been here before, I'm sorry. I'm old and I forget faces and... I don't recognize you, okay? But I, I sense God wants to show mercy in salvation to someone this morning. It's a profound mercy. It's a mercy that comes not by killing Pharaoh's firstborn, you want, you want to know what this is all about? Corey's going to preach this next week. You know what this is all about? You know what this narrative is all about? You know why this history? You know why all the plagues? Because God wanted to set up for us 
the firstborn that was killed for our freedom so that I'm no longer a slave to all the junk that I've been a slave to. And you know the firstborn he killed? He killed his son so that then we could be born again. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says that he has ordained for you to be justified and then to be conformed. We call that sanctification, just changing, becoming like Jesus. You know what it says then? So that he would be the firstborn of many brothers. That's you and that's me. That's the church. Old Testament biblical theology, Israel was God's firstborn. Israel is a picture of Christ, the ultimate firstborn. So I think God wants to save someone this morning. So I just want us to bow our head. No no worship team, no nothing. And I just want to pray for you. Look, God's dealing with you right now. Not Alpino. It is God. Lord, this is a holy moment. And I believe that you are speaking to us just like you spoke to Egypt. Let my people go. They might worship me and serve me. And if not, I'm going to bring hail and kill everything that's outside. And there were some Egyptians that listened. They feared you and they went inside and they were saved. Oh Lord, what a picture of salvation. You told Noah, it's going to rain and I'm going to kill everything on this earth. And if you want to be saved, get inside the ark. And those who went in the ark were saved. And you say to us, my judgment is coming. My wrath is coming. You have not seen anything yet. But get inside the cross. As Ricky preached last week, united with Christ. Get in Christ and you'll be saved because I rained blows down upon him at Calvary. The blows you deserved. And I give you the life that he earned. So, oh God, would you speak to hearts right now? Hearts that have been playing games and thinking that it's just a big joke. Lord, humble them with Holy Spirit conviction. Break their hearts that you might preserve their souls in eternity. And may they bow their knee to you. Lord, in this narrative, Pharaoh did finally bow to you when he held his lifeless son's body in his arms. But you know, we know it was a forced bow because later he tried to kill Israel and you destroyed him. And Lord, your, your New Testament word says clearly that one day every knee will bow. Philippians 2, 11, every knee will bow, every tongue confess on earth, under the earth, in the heavens that Jesus is Lord. But, but there'll be some that do that in a forced way. They'll be judged forever because they did not declare repentance and faith on this earth in this life. Lord, give the gift of repentance now. That willingly, 
those who don't know you and have rebelled against you would bow to you. I'm just going to pause for a moment. I'm just going to ask you, if this is you, would you please indicate somehow that it is you? And I I believe the way to indicate that would just simply be um, perhaps just to stand. Just stand right at your seat if that's you. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your mercies. And I pray that they would speak very loudly. Lord, in the days and weeks to come. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, thank you for coming. The Lord bless you this week. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.